Good evening, this is Rob McClure, along with Vicki Iden, bringing you your live local news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. One out of every 36 black Wisconsinites is in prison. And comparatively, Wisconsin imprisons black residents at a higher rate than any other state. Black individuals in Wisconsin are incarcerated at 12 times the rate of white people in the state. Nationwide, black individuals are incarcerated at five times the rate of white people. That's all according to a groundbreaking new report authored by The Sentencing Project, an advocacy group that seeks to reduce the use of incarceration in the United States, and the subject of a new article by the investigative outlet Wisconsin Watch. Two of Wisconsin's largest utility companies are warning residents that they may see higher heating bills this winter since natural gas prices have more than doubled this year. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that We Energies is warning that the average cost to heat homes could spike by $25 a month this winter. Customers of Wisconsin Public Service could pay as much as $40 more per month. The city of Middleton is considering regulating how many chickens residents can have in their yards. The proposed ordinance would prohibit roosters, limit the number of hens based on acreage, and require setbacks from houses and property lines. The proposed changes come as city leaders report a handful of chicken-related complaints in the past few months, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Dane County zoning limits the number of domestic fowl kept at a residence to eight. Chickens and other fowl must have access to an enclosure for which a zoning permit is required. Construction for a main student hub on the UW-Madison campus is expected to begin in 2023. The building will become the new home of the campus College of Letters and Sciences, which houses the most students on the UW campus. University officials announced a substantial donation to the tune of $20 million from a Madison-based alcohol distributor, distributor to support the project. The building is slated to be completed by 2025, and its construction paves the way to demolish UW-Madison's Humanities Building, whose brutalist architecture style is beloved by some, though derided by many. In more UW-Madison news, Senator Ted Cruz is in Madison tonight, taking a starring role in an event organized by a UW-Madison campus chapter of a national conservative group. But he won't be headed to Memorial Union as originally planned after event organizers disagreed with the UW's policy to wear masks inside. The chapter of the Young America's Foundation characterizes the health protocols as, quote, a double standard mask policy, unquote. Senator Cruz will be recording an episode of his video podcast called Verdict with Ted Cruz at Wisconsin Masonic Center tonight at 7 p.m. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers, courtesy of the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases has dipped to 2,318 newly confirmed cases. But the seven-day rolling average of COVID-19 deaths is ticking up, with 25 COVID-related deaths reported today. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin State Journal reports that the number of COVID cases in Madison Public Schools is slightly down. 139 new cases were reported over the past two weeks, which is several dozen fewer than previous reporting period. Those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Before we go on, a warning that this next story mentions sexual assault and rape. Today, a few hundred East High School students walked out of their third period class and gathered on the front steps. Most were wearing red or pink to show solidarity with a sexual assault victim. For more, we turn to reporter Jade Isiri Ramos, who was at the demonstration. Today, as rain began to fall, East High School students gathered in support of a teenager who was allegedly raped in a private residence after East High School's homecoming last weekend. The unnamed student was not at school or at the walkout today, but she had a message. I wish I could be there with you guys right now. 
standing up for all the victims of sexual abuse and harassment. I wish this world wasn't so to the point where we need to go out of our way to be heard and given the rights we deserve. Reading the statement is Felice Casinera. She is a friend of the survivor and was with her the night of the alleged assault. Casinera is also one of the organizers of today's walkout. So this is for justice and this is for the victim, all right? But I want everybody here to know that this is what we're doing it for, okay? To get out of this school. We want him suspended until he is prosecuted and then we want him out of here forever. Casineta says the incident happened at her house and they went to the hospital shortly after it happened. Madison police are investigating the incident, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. And while students speaking today named the accused, WORT is not because he has not been charged of a crime. A group of students concerned about the alleged assault met with the East High School principal earlier this week. Sean Levy is the school's recently hired principal. In a recording of Monday's conversation provided to WORT, Levy says he was required to follow the school board's policies. We were asking for the basic protocols for sexual assault, and we spent 14 minutes asking. We were called emotional. We were told that we felt there was a rape. Whitman Botari was at that meeting. And we had no answers. And eventually I said, you could have told us the answers by now. How hard is it? How long is this protocol? How complicated is this protocol to enact? And we still couldn't get answers. Botari is a member of the school's Gender and Equity Club and says even though she works on sexual assault and harassment issues, her training on what to do if an assault happens has been lackluster. I have never been personally told how to report a sexual assault or rape. I have never been told how to report sexual harassment. We're only told, report it. Those two words. The district safety plan requires a critical response team to activate if an assault happens at school, but does not clearly outline a policy for assaults involving students off school property. However, the district's behavior education plan lists non-consensual intercourse as an expulsionary behavior. In an email sent to the school community ahead of today's walkout, Levy apologized for his response during assembly on that behavior education plan. He said in that email, at East High School, they strive to have a culture that everyone feels safe, respected, valued, and supported. But Botari says, community is to do better, to work harder, to take what we're saying seriously. We aren't just kids. We are fighting for this. We've experienced this. And we need help. We are out here begging for help. And the administration, the district needs to do things about this. Students are planning a second walkout on Friday. That walkout is aimed at demanding policy reforms for school-related sexual assault and protesting the administration's handling of this incident. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jada Siri Ramos. Wisconsin's Republican legislators are floating a package of bills that would, among other things, open up a sandhill crane hunting season and allow concealed carrying of firearms without a license. And today, the so-called Sporting Freedom Package earned support from an unorthodox political figure. Here's our producer, Jonah Chester. A man who needs no introduction. Uh, We are very excited to have Ted Nugent here today to address you. Earlier today, Ted Nugent lent his support to 13 Republican-authored hunting bills. Well, thank you very much. I feel like this is like a Nugent family deer camp up here. Um, A lot of positive spirit and energy and attitude. Nugent, the 1970s rocker behind such works as Stranglehold and Cat Scratch Fever, is the official spokesperson for Hunter Nation, a Kansas-based lobbying group that's backing the so-called Wisconsin Sporting Freedom Package. As his musical career has waned, Nugent has found a new calling as a conservative spokesperson, gun rights activist, and peddler of COVID-19 misinformation. And I'm here not representing any Ted Nugent opinions. I'm not that cocky. In fact, Nugent shared many opinions. The deer was made the perfect size for my arrow. The beaver pelt is perfect for my grandchildren's Christmas gift. Hunting, fishing, and trapping is perfect, and when they're overregulated, people quit. People don't participate, and that's what's happening. 
The legislative package that Nugent and Hunter Nation are backing would, among other things, open up a sandhill crane hunting season, permit concealed carrying of a firearm without a license, and require the DNR to eliminate three rules every time they add a new rule. Other notable bills would consolidate the state's turkey hunting seasons, require the DNR to create a biennial work plan for habitat management, and provide a chance to hunt non-native bovids, that's cloven-hooved members of the cattle family. Both the Sandhill Crane Hunting Legislation and Concealed Carry Bill were written by Senator Mary Felskowski, a Republican from Irma. Felskowski says that it's time to remove the Sandhill Crane from the state's protected species list. Over the years, the Sandhill Crane has been an endangered species. And we've done a great job in the state of Wisconsin of protecting that and then bringing our numbers back where it's no longer on the endangered species list. It's time now to manage that resource, just as we do with all our other waterfowl and birds. Nugent referred to the protected species as, quote, ribeye in the sky. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a 2011 bill to open a sandhill crane hunting season died in committee. That's the last time the issue was raised in the legislature. The second bill that I have is constitutional carry. In the state of Wisconsin, we allow you to open carry. You can strap a, a 9mm pistol on your hip and you can walk down Main Street, but you can't put a coat on. But Felskowski's bill goes further than just concealed carry. It would essentially eliminate a state-level prohibition against guns in police stations, prisons, and mental health facilities. It would also allow folks to bring a firearm into a wildlife refuge and eliminate a state-level policy prohibiting folks from carrying a weapon while operating an all-terrain vehicle. It would also eliminate a prohibition on carrying a firearm into a bar, although drinking while armed would still be illegal. According to the journal Sentinel, in 2017, Felskowski introduced a similar proposal, which was rejected by then-Governor Scott Walker, who said that, quote, I think the law we have right now is a good law, unquote. When asked why a concealed carry bill was in a hunting package, Felskowski largely dodged the question, arguing that hunters were prone to gotcha gun laws. She did not clarify what a gotcha gun law is. We are giving local control to individual businesses, If they do not want people openly or concealed carrying any weapon into their business, they have the right to post against that. Nugent had a more concise take. I was born with constitutional carry. It is a God-given right. Luke Hilgeman, Hunter Nation's CEO, says that the group plans to push similar legislative packages in other states. And Wisconsin is the beginning. It is not the end. We are taking this same type of reform package all across the country because this lifestyle has been under attack unlike anything that I've seen in my life. Hunter Nation has also played a pivotal role in the fight over Wisconsin's wolf population. This past winter, the group successfully sued the Department of Natural Resources over the department's plans to delay Wisconsin's wolf hunt. Hunter Nation's victory in that case kicked off a frantic, roughly three-day hunt in February that ended with hunters killing 216 wolves, blowing past the state-imposed quota of 119. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the group is also backing this winter's wolf hunt and has challenged lawsuits brought by conservation groups that seek to stop that hunt. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. And the studio clock says it's now 6.20, and you're listening to the local evening news on WORT. Time is now 6.20, and you're listening to WORT. In 2011, Wisconsin's Republican lawmakers drafted legislative maps that assured their dominance in the legislature for the following decade. 
Now, as we wade into the 2021 redistricting process, a new podcast from Wisconsin Public Radio is attempting to draw a through line between redistricting past and present. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Bridget Bowden, one of the podcast's co-hosts and producers. Mapped Out is the story of how Wisconsin's 2011 redistricting plan came together and how it essentially locked in Republican control for a decade. We'll look at how the fight over these maps dragged on for years and went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And we'll take you through what might happen with the next round of redistricting, which has already begun. That was a clip from Mapped Out, a new podcast from Wisconsin Public Radio that tracks the 2011 redistricting process and what impacts it's having on redistricting now in 2021. I'm joined on the other end of the line by Bridget Bowden, the show's co-host and one of its producers. So talk to me, talk to me about the inspiration for this project. What inspired you and your, your co-host Sean Johnson to take a closer look at the 2011 redistricting process? Right. So Sean and I have worked together on long-term documentary style reporting in the past. A couple years ago, we made a podcast called Derailed, which was about the high-speed rail line between Madison and Milwaukee uh, that was canceled after the 2010 election here in Wisconsin. So we wanted another topic like that, something that would be interesting to look back at, uh, but also something that was relevant now. And we thought, you know, Redistricting is going to be one of the biggest stories out of Wisconsin and and really across the country happening this year. And there was a lot that happened here from the last redistricting cycle. So we thought it would be a good idea to to take a step back and see how we got to where we are now. Yeah, let's zero in on that point a little bit more. How does redistricting past and the maps drawn in 2011 impact this most current round of redistricting? Sure. So, um, the 2011 round of redistricting was very unique in Wisconsin because uh, it was one of the only times, if not the only time in state history that there had been single party control of both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. So that meant that Republicans got control over basically the whole process of passing the new district maps. So they were able to draw the maps and then pass them through the the legislature, and then the governor signed those maps. So I can go into more detail about what happened with those maps, but it's relevant now because for the most part, those maps survived and those are the maps that we have. And just recently, the state legislature passed a non-binding resolution that sort of stated their objectives, their, their values, if you will, on this round of redistricting. And one thing that they said was they'd like to, you know, keep as, as, as much as they can, the map that's in place now. Yeah, one of the interesting points you make in, in not even just the first episode, but in the trailer for the podcast itself is that the extent of how much Republicans were carving up Wisconsin to sort of favor them going into the going into the decade wasn't immediately known because it was it was sort of buried under the debate and the protests surrounding Act 10 and that whole controversy. When did the extent of this shifting power balance become apparent? When did folks start realizing, oh, Republicans now have a majority and have a, a strong control because of these maps they drafted? You know, redistricting happens once every 10 years after the census is done. So that means that um, in 2011, that was when the last redistricting map was drawn. Well, if you think about what was happening in Wisconsin politics in 2011, it was a really crazy year, right? You had the uh, new administration, Governor Walker's administration, getting started. You had Act 10, all the protests. It was It was really a monumental year. But at the same time, you know, redistricting is a scheduled process and it, you know, it it happened at a time when I think the the majority of the public, as far as, as politics goes, was focused on other things because there was a lot of other stuff going on. And so, yeah, the, the maps were able to pass without major protests or anything like that. Um, and so when you look back at the history of, of when it happened, it's pretty interesting. And that's sort of... The opposite of the case this time around where, you know, there's intense scrutiny on these new maps that are being drawn. It seems like pretty much every other week some new lawsuit is being filed. We don't even have the formal maps yet or nothing's been filed yet. So I guess going into this most recent redistricting round, what is fundamentally different in 2021 compared to 2011? 
Yeah, so I will say that last time around, um, we also saw lawsuits even before maps were drawn. That's kind of just how the lawsuits work. Basically, when the census comes out with their data and you're able to make a good case that the um, current population does not line up with the maps in place, that is a good foot in the door, you know, to get a lawsuit in place to get into the courts saying these districts are what they call malapportioned. So the fact that there are lawsuits now isn't completely unusual. It happened last time around as well. What is different is this time we do not have single party control, right? Both houses of the legislature are controlled by Republicans and we have a Democrat, Tony Evers, in the governor's office. So that is a big difference. Now, diving a little bit more into your reporting on the series, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about RedMap. Now, this is in the most recent episode of the podcast that dropped and sort of how how strategists and political strategists in 2011 factored into Wisconsin's redistricting process. Right. So, yes, you mentioned it was an effort called RedMap. And I find it very interesting. Basically, it was a national effort to funnel national money into local races, state legislative races, in an effort to flip state legislatures red to um, elect more Republicans so that they could redraw the maps. Um, So uh, Chris Jankowski is the political strategist who ran that program, and he had been interested in state politics for a long time. Uh, But I think that he realized that state politics really matters in years that end in zero because that is when the census come out comes out and that is when redistricting starts. So local politics, state politics has a national impact, especially in those years. And you mentioned this a minute ago, and I'd like to circle back around to the lawsuits we saw in 2011. Where did those ultimately go? I know at least one went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court who declined to really issue any any uh, any decision on that case, correct? Right. So the first case, the first lawsuit related to the 2011 maps um, was a federal case that basically was related to the voting rights districts in the city of Milwaukee. And that was in 2012. And ultimately, the result of that lawsuit was a single line being moved um, in the Milwaukee area on the map. And then later, there was another federal case that brought actually a partisan gerrymandering claim against the map. And that is the one that ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Bridget, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation today. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about the podcast, about the project, anything at all we didn't get a chance to touch on here today that you want folks to be aware of going forward? Yeah, I would love if people could uh, listen to the podcast. Uh, you'll hear a lot more about the things we've talked about today. It's called WPR Reports Mapped Out, and we have new episodes every Wednesday wherever you'll find you pro- your podcasts. And we'll have a link to that up in the web version of this interview at wortfm.org. Bridget, thanks so much for the conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bridget Bowden is the co-host and <coughs> producer of Mapped Out, a podcast from Wisconsin Public Radio. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. There's a lot more coming at you. We'll get the week in local government happenings on Downtown Abbey. We'll look back at the headlines from October of 1966. And there's a big storm moving up the plains to our west, and it's going to finally bring us some cold temperatures. Not quite the frost level, but perhaps next week. Stay tuned. But first, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, along with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. Do you know what the city council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? 
Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. Here's the latest from Becker on all that is local on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how are you doing this week? I am doing okay. I'm staying dry today on this very rainy Wednesday. How about yourself, Jonah? I'm doing great as well. I personally love fall rain. I am not a big fan of bright, sunshiny summer, so I am in my element today. Uh, let's go ahead and jump right into what's happening in local government. Uh, top on the news of local slash state government issues, last week, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway spoke up about a taxpayer-funded partisan investigation into Wisconsin's 2020 election. Tell me what she had to say. Well, she called the investigation corrosive to our democracy and asked for an apology to city clerks from the former state Supreme Court justice leading this probe. The mayor's comments last week followed the news last Thursday that former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman had backed away from subpoenas and interview requests issued to officials in five cities regarding their election administration. Gableman was chosen by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss in June to lead the investigation and given a budget of $680,000 to to do this work. Rose Conway also said she was shocked by Gableman, admitting that he doesn't know anything about how Wisconsin's elections are run. Gableman told the Journal Sentinel that, quote, most people, myself included, do not have a comprehensive understanding or even any understanding of how elections work. Throughout last week, Gableman issued subpoenas demanding a broad range of election-related materials, amounting to hundreds of thousands of pages and records from city officials in Madison, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha. He also demanded interviews with mayors and city clerks from these cities. I will point out that mayors are not involved in election administration. Madison City Attorney Michael Haas had said that he and other city attorneys were notified last week on Thursday that the investigation team would no longer require interviews nor seek the wide you know, swath of materials initially requested in the subpoenas. And instead, the city attorney from Madison said that cities will only be required to submit copies of records they have already made available to others in response to requests under the state's open records law. Um, he also said that investigators have the, the right to ask for additional materials and reschedule interviews with city officials. And then this week, continuing this story, uh, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Cole on Monday said that, you know, this Republican-backed taxpayer-funded review of the 2020 presidential election, quote, doesn't have any credibility and called on Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to end the investigation. So we continue to see news about this, and I am definitely following it uh, just to see how it will resolve. It is truly an interesting topic to follow. But moving right along away from election investigations, you know, we've all come to rely on the Internet more as communities have gone virtual for work, school and recreation over the past year and a half. You know, but not everyone has equal access to broadband. So tell me what a Madison task force concluded after studying the issue. Yeah, so this task force found that Madison has limited resources when it comes to addressing digital inclusion initiatives like Internet access. Um, but also that the city should foster coordination between local entities that are connecting people to information technology. Um, you know, as you said, broadband internet has become a really crucial part of navigating education, healthcare, employment, and government, and, you know, lots of things, uh, you know, in the community. Uh, but thousands of households in Madison and Dane County are not connected to the internet, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. So creating digital inclusion, um, you know, which is kind of defined as activities that are necessary to ensure all individuals and communities, including the most disadvantaged, have access to and use of information and communication technologies, um, you know, also means ensuring access to not just broadband, but Internet-connected devices, digital training, tech support, and online content that promotes participation. Madison's Digital Inclusion Task Force set out in April of this year to identify strategic priorities to make sure residents have the information technology capacity that they need to fully participate in society, democracy, and the economy. The group conducted their work, of course, as this pandemic forced communities to convene online instead of in person, um, and that also exposed the inequalities of digital access. 
gaps in the physical infrastructure connecting people to the internet, affordability, access to devices and digital literacy skills are the main obstacles preventing community access to broadband. Um, And the task force outlined this in their report. So to address these issues, the task force recommended that the city identify where to focus efforts and create a formal partnership with community partners to communicate regularly. Um, So, you know, Fully addressing this issue would, you know, hopefully mean uh, that everyone has equal access to the Internet. But actually laying fiber and, uh, you know, connecting people to the Internet is, is pretty expensive. And so this report kind of looked at the resources available and what the city can do and concluded that what it can do is serve as the point of connection, if you will, for other communities and organizations that are doing um, this type of digital inclusion work, um, you know, already in the community. Alder Keith Thurman told me that he plans to sponsor an amendment to the Executive 2022 Capital Budget to add a position that would do just that, that would connect existing resources in the community and be an advocate for broadband services. Um, You know, this task force also discussed uh, digital equity. When a community is digitally inclusive, it allows for digital equity. And that means that all community members have the tools they need to fully participate in, and again, in society and in democracy and in the local economy. And digital inclusion also creates digital literacy or, you know, the the ability to use and create digital information, the actual knowledge of how to, um, you know, use this technology. Um, you know, Madison faces challenges to creating a digitally inclusive economy that include the cost of these programs and the physical infrastructure and state mandated limits that prevent the city from becoming an Internet service provider. So we'll see what happens with this budget amendment and, um, you know, what this position might accomplish if it's approved. And then last but certainly not least, redistricting is in full swing. And last week, Madison's ad hoc redistricting committee recommended a map of new voting district boundaries to reflect population growth over the last decade. Can you give me some of the highlights? I sure can. And I'll I'll first say that watching lots of these redistricting committees, um, I'm you know, not envious of, of being a member of that committee and doing that work. It is quite complicated. Uh, so this seven-member committee was unanimous in its decision and reaffirmed committee members' previous preference for what is called Concept 7A. Uh, so if you're in the city's legislature system, Concept 7A is what was recommended. This option minimizes neighborhood splits between Alder districts and keeps the University of Wisconsin-Madison residence halls and the Tenney Lapham neighborhood in one district. Under this option, the Beltline crosses District 19 and the Arbor Hills and Leopold neighborhoods would be located in different Alder districts. Now, all versions of the maps, um, you know, that were created and considered and discussed altered current Alder district lines. Now, this recommended map would create 10 districts with a population of at least 30% people of color. Two districts would have 40% and one, District 14, would have 60%. Um, And I bring that up because the chair of the committee and the executive director of Commonwealth Development, Justice Castaneda, said that that would be unprecedented for Madison. And he said that the recommended option reflects the amount of work that the committee put into uh, the community to lift up the voices of communities of color. And with another concept that was discussed last week, the representation of people of color was slightly diminished in that other concept. According to criteria the committee considered, districts should have equal population, enhanced participation of communities of color and communities that primarily use a language other than English, and be compact and contiguous. The new boundaries also keep in mind maintaining communities of interest, which include neighborhoods and neighborhood associations, elementary school attendance areas, college students, housing tenure and transient, so meaning, you know, homeowners and renters, as well as income distribution. Alder Sherry Carter, you know, was uh, pushing for the other option that was considered last week. Um, And this alternative map uh, sort of came about, uh, as Carter said, because uh, the idea was to join together areas in the Winger Lake watershed. And this option would have kept Arbor Hills within District 14 and split neighborhoods in South Madison. I'll point out that the criteria um, does not include where current alders live in their discussion of redistricting. So doing this work without regard for incumbency is pretty important. 
under the recommended map, five current alders would be in a different district than the one they currently represent when the boundaries take effect. Um, and that would include alders Carter and Barbara Harrington-McKinney, Patrick Heck, Brian Benford, and Christian Alburis. For the April 2023 alder elections, all incumbent alders and candidates will need to live in the district they seek to represent. Alder Benford had said in a blog post that being drawn out of his seat doesn't bother him, you know, as it might other elected officials. Um, under the recommended map, he'd be living in the new District 15. And he said in that post that, you know, the city should think of the process of redistricting as, you know, what's best for the city and underrepresented people and not um, elected officials' electability. All right, and we'll keep our eyes on that going forward. But for the time being, I've been joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, as always, thanks for joining me this week. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Jonah. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we've continued on the double-digit above-normal temperature streak through day 13 now. That was yesterday. I think today may finally put a nix on that, although we will still end up probably being at least 8 or 9 degrees warmer than normal by the time we get to midnight tonight. As you may have been able to tell by the howling winds this afternoon, we've got a seasonally vigorous mid-latitude storm passing through the upper Midwest, in this case far out to our west on a track that's currently taking the circulation almost due north out in the central Dakotas. If you want to have a look at the storm, you might go to the WORT weather webpage and pull up the Midwest visible satellite image that has surface streamlines of wind laid over top of it. It's a beautiful storm. It's sidelit now in the setting sun and lifting north-northeastward from about Pierre, South Dakota, up towards North Dakota and western Minnesota with a clear slot rotating up and around its forward side up through uh, central Iowa and Minnesota. That's an area beneath a 100-mile-per-hour jet stream wind that's uh, feeding into the storm from the southwest. The warm frontal precipitation that we saw earlier today is, I think, all about about all the moisture we're going to see from this storm, with the cold frontal passage later this evening remaining dry. The cold front's not going to get very far south and east of us before low pressure redevelops down south along it in Oklahoma later tomorrow and tries to rotate the boundary back towards us. The short-range modeling has generally been trending precipitation with that front and it's passing low later tomorrow, further and further south and east as we get on towards Friday morning. So I anticipate that the southeast parts of the listening area would be the likeliest to see any of that activity. And we may just see just a general bump up in cloud cover for much of uh, southern Wisconsin early Friday. The weekend then looks dry, and although we've got a much colder air mass than we've seen so far this autumn coming in over us, dew points in that air mass look to hold in the mid-30s, and there is likely to be enough continued wind through the coming overnight periods to prevent any widespread frost concerns. On top of that, upper ridging and warm air return will already be underway on the plains just west of us by the time we get to Saturday evening, and with surface winds backing more westerly in the overnight period after that, I think we may actually hold in the low 40s before jumping back actually into the 60s for high temperatures on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. The way it's looking, we may be near 70 on Monday. There has been and continues to be some evolution in the modeling of the mid and end portion of next week. The next significant cold air intrusion looks to have been pushed further off in the future towards next weekend. And while the strength of that has not looked terribly concerning so far on the model runs, the last GFS run to be published this afternoon showed a very robust cold air mass coming over us by about the 24th or the 25th of the month. If that verified, we'd have temperatures well below freeze level at that time. So stay tuned for additional developments as far as that's concerned. But back to tonight, the sky should begin to thin and clear from west to east as we get on later this evening. But the eastward expansion of the clear slot over Iowa may be slow as we go through the night. Temperatures and dew points may continue to actually increase for another couple or three hours on southerly winds, which will be up to 10 to 17 miles per hour before uh, both temperature and dew point then start to crash as winds veer southwest and bring in much drier air through the balance of the night. Low temperatures by daybreak should be in the mid-50s. I'm expecting to see a fair bit of passing high and mid-level clouds through the morning tomorrow, especially south and east of Madison, with skies steadily clearing from, from the west. Temperatures will respond 
sun to sunshine uh, wherever that uh, starts to occur. So temperatures may reach the lower, possibly even the mid-60s in some areas west or southwest of Madison tomorrow, probably holding a bit cooler than that in the areas with longer cloud cover to the east. Southwesterly winds will be up to 8 to 12 miles per hour during the day. Lighter westerly winds overnight should let temperatures drop to the mid-40s or so, but increasing cloud cover from the south and west should limit temperature falls any below that. We'll see passing high and mid-level clouds through Friday morning, more prevalent and thicker south and east of Madison, thinner to the north and west. Areas south and east may see a few passing light showers. Skies should clear from west to east in the afternoon on Friday, allowing temperatures to reach the mid-50s on veering northwesterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. We'll clear more yet as we go overnight with low temperatures possibly dipping into the upper 30s in some of the more sheltered spots early Saturday morning on uh, north uh, west. The northwest winds up at 8 to, uh, 8 to 10 miles per hour. We should be clear and breezy then on Saturday with west-northwesterly winds increasing to 10 to 20 miles per hour in the afternoon as dropping surface pressures and increasing warmth to our west tighten up the pressure gradient through here. High temperatures will again be in the mid-50s. will hold, I think, in the low 40s through the overnight period on lighter, more westerly winds. And then I think we could pop back into the low 60s on Sunday as the ridge begins to build over us from the west. And uh, as winds back more southwesterly Monday, we may inch back towards 70. It's currently 63 degrees at the uh, station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 58. Winds are out of the south uh, up at 20 miles per hour, gusting still up above 30 from time to time. Skies are uh, overcast uh, at about 1,400 feet, and the barometer's falling at 29.72 inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Fifty-five years ago this month, Madison saw critical events in the ongoing sagas to end the war in Vietnam and build a public auditorium. Stu Levitan has the details and more news from October 1966 on this week's edition of Madison in the 60s. Mapped Out is the story of how Wisconsin Madison in the 60s, October 1966. Two events on the 13th. The City Council rejects a request from the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom to set up a card table at 613 University Avenue to solicit signatures on a petition protesting the use of napalm in Vietnam. The Council doesn't want to go on record for use of sidewalks for such a purpose, says Alder Milo Flayton in moving to reject the request, but the council does approve a request from the Eastside Kiwanis Club to raise money by selling candy on the sidewalk in front of the Security State Bank at Shanks Corners. And Security radical State organizer Saul Alinsky, whose Industrial Areas Foundation recently organized Poor Blacks in Rochester, New York, discusses the politics of poverty, the meaning of black power, and why it's a mistake to link the anti-war movement with efforts to organize poor blacks in an appearance before a capacity union theater crowd. The peace movement is not an issue in the ghetto, he says, as many poor persons of color find the armed forces a better alternative to going jobless. 
A lot of them would like to see the bomb dropped if it would fall on their white oppressors, he says. The author of Reveille for Radicals and a biography of John L. Lewis, he decries the dichotomy of color used to denote value. Anytime we use a color, anything horrible is always black, he notes. Black tragedy, a dreary black day, and the angels are all white. And he explains why change always brings conflict. Change means movement, movement means friction, friction means heat, and heat means conflict. And he tells his overwhelmingly white audience that its role is to be a supportive ally, not the primary protagonist. People cannot get equality by having others do it for them, he says. They can get it only by getting strong enough to take it. About two o'clock the next morning, a major development in the decade-long battle over a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed public auditorium at Law Park. As the city council votes 15 to 7 to approve a contract with the Wright Foundation to draft a Monona Basin Master Plan, featuring an auditorium for up to 2,500, exhibition and banquet space for up to 3,000, and a small theater, recital hall, and art gallery of 10,000 square feet. Now it's up to architect William Wesley Peters to come up with a plan to satisfy all council factions. And on the 27th, a pivotal event in the anti-war movement, as Senator Edward Kennedy comes to the UW Stock Pavilion to help the gubernatorial campaign of longtime family friend Patrick J. Lucy and runs afoul of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, which had vowed not to let any federal official speak on campus in any capacity. The committee manages to get members on stage directly behind Kennedy, their anti-war chants picked up by his microphone, their placards in his photographs. More members are out among the capacity crowd of about 4,000. Given a standing ovation as he rises to speak, Kennedy is immediately interrupted with catcalls and shouts of, Talk about the war! Unable to continue, Kennedy finally invites committee chair Robin David up to the podium. David speaks for nearly 10 minutes, reiterating the Socialist Workers' Party slogan, Bring the Troops Home Now. But he's unprepared to debate a United States senator and obviously outmatched by the charismatic Kennedy. Aware that Kennedy is winning the room, committee leaders quickly decide to disrupt his speech with continued heckling, which then spreads. Down front... Leah Zeldin starts in with some of the loudest and most urgent shouts of the afternoon. I have four sons, she cries out, and I don't want them to die in Asia. A student tries to silence her with a coat over her head, but she throws it off and keeps it up for nearly 30 minutes until Kennedy gives up, unable to finish his remarks on behalf of the liberal pro-student Lucy. Reaction is swift and unanimous in condemning the action, which UW President Fred Harvey Harrington and the Daily Cardinal both call disgraceful. Over 8,000 students sign a letter of apology, as does a unanimous city council. Democratic State Senator Fred Risser warns, correctly, that conservatives controlling state government will cite this incident in pushing to cut the university's budget. Although the Committee to End the War does not direct the widespread heckling after Kennedy dismissed David, the group initiated the overall action, and so gets the blame. The Wisconsin Student Association puts the committee on probation for its role in the protest. Many regions say they wanted the discipline to have been more serious. But WSA Senator Paul Soglin says there should not have been any discipline at all. The faculty's Student Conduct and Appeals Committee holds a special Saturday session and declares that deliberately interfering with a university-sanctioned speech, quote, may constitute grounds for university disciplinary action, not excluding the possibility in flagrant or repeated cases of suspension or expulsion. The next day, the powerful university committee holds a special session and votes to create new policies and procedures to protect the rights to speak and hear. In December, the faculty overwhelmingly adopts a new rule forbidding obstruction, section 11.02 of the university rules and regulations, with no ambiguity about its cause. 
This may be called the Ted Kennedy section, says its chief drafter, political science professor David Feldman. The resolution adopting the rule, immediately binding on the Madison campus, states that those attending a program sponsored by a campus group, quote, have the duty not to obstruct it, and the university has the obligation to protect the right to listen and participate. Exactly what those terms mean, Fellman says, will be up to the Dean of Students and the Student Life and Interest Committee. Fifty weeks after the Kennedy incident, it is to enforce the Kennedy rule that Chancellor William Sewell will call in the Madison Police Department to clear the Commerce Building on October 18, 1967, drawing first blood in the Battle of Dow. That is how history happens. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. I'll remind you again that this is a volunteer-produced newscast by and large, and we could use some more volunteer reporters if you have an interest in getting training as a reporter, or if you already are one, call the station at 256-2001 during business hours. Your reporters this evening, or your reporter, was Jade Isiri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady was our on-air engineer this evening, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.